We'll be in the book of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote to uh, the church at Philippi. We use the English standard version, the ESV version. And so um, I ask you to open your Bibles this morning with me. Uh, welcome to you at home that are following along uh, via the internet. I'll give you a moment to find Philippians as well. If you're on a device, uh, give you just a moment to, to get caught up. But last week, we started a three-part series in this letter to the Philippian church that Paul writes. And one of the central themes of that letter is the theme of joy. Matter of fact, it's just a small four-chapter um, book of the Bible that we're looking at, letter written to fellow Christians, but in this four-chapter letter, the word joy or rejoice shows up 16 times, 16 times. So over and over again, joy shows up, rejoicing shows up, and it's always connected to the gospel. Let me go back and just say, here's some of the definitions that uh, we uh, used last week, so you're back on the page with us, or if you're uh, new, you'll understand where we're going here. Joy, the word joy, means to be internally well as a person. Internally well. It's a, it's a soul health, if you will. It means deep down within, in the, in the language that is used, joy is a settled health and wellness of a person's soul internally. And it's a gift from God that it's not something that you have to work to try and find or achieve. It's a gift to us by God, to those who believe and follow Christ. It's not circumstantial. It's not something that is based on what's happening or not happening to you in life. It's this settled state that's centered on Jesus and the gospel. And so out of joy, the word rejoicing or rejoice also connects. Uh, rejoicing or rejoice, the word used, is also a state of internal health that is expressed by gladness and contentment in a person's life. It's observable fruit, if you will, in someone who is living in joy because their life shows that they're thriving with contentment regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. And so as a, a reminder this morning, when Paul writes this letter, he is in prison, probably awaiting death. That's who he writes to his friends, and he reminds them that he's living in joy and that they should live in joy and rejoice. Now, in our modern context, that hardly seems like that should make sense, does it? You know, life is rotten. Life is hard. Paul's maybe going to die at any moment, and yet he is rejoicing. He's happy. He's content. I said last week that joy can lead you to happiness 
but happiness will never lead you to joy. Okay? Happiness is short-term, circumstantial. So pursuing something that is not a settled thing will not give you an internal health and settled state in your soul. The problem is we, me included, all of us, get caught pursuing happiness at the expense of joy, only to find it lacking. This week, we're going to look at Jesus and his gospel, the very source of joy. Remember, joy is a gift from God, the settled state of soul health that comes from a redeemed life. And in chapter 3, Paul writes to remind those who will receive this letter about the essential pieces, the source of joy. Because you can just overlook it, you can miss it, you can take it for granted. It seems maybe so obvious once you're a Christian even, that you'll just kind of move beyond it, you think. I was reminded this week, uh, as we're doing some work in our house, when we bought our house 40 years ago, we were newlyweds, and um, one of the first projects that had to be done was uh, I had a leaky uh, bathroom tub shower faucet, okay? And so I'm pretty green and don't know much about this stuff, and I asked my neighbor, which was very gracious, an elderly guy, and he said, just go to the hardware store, tell them you have this kind of faucet, and they'll give you the pieces you need. Piece of cake, right? So I go to the uh, hardware store, and he told me to tell them I have a <clears throat> washerless faucet. And I tell him that, and they give me a bag of washers. I'm like, well, I got a washerless faucet. The guy's, no, no, you don't understand. That doesn't mean, all right, fine, give me these. Got a simple uh, one page set of instructions on how to fix the leaky faucet. It's before the internet and all that kind of YouTube stuff you can find. Well, the day before, Kim had just wallpapered the bathroom, okay? So I, I get in the tub and I'm starting to look at things and I take this screw off and that screw off and I slide the handle out. I'm like, man, this is, this is not gonna be a big deal at all, you know? I got my little pack of washers there, take one more screw off, slide the thing out, and water comes spraying across the bathroom. It's sprayed on the new wallpaper and I have to yell, Kim, turn off the water. And she says, where, where do I do that? I don't know, call the neighbor. The, the, the point is this, we forgot the most important piece, and that was to turn the water off. And as Christians, unless we go back to the gospel, unless we constantly reminded of Jesus and the work on the cross, we will slide by it, ignore it, and not be reminded that that is the source of joy. Sin causes us to seek happiness and miss joy. To try and find something that'll give us a sense of contentment and satisfaction that is only short-term happiness and actually distract you from the source that we need reminded of. So in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be. 
Paul is concerned that this is happening or will happen to his friends in Philippi. You see, there's a group of people that constantly followed Paul that were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers would take the gospel and distort it in such a way that it was actually then a false gospel. It was also then minimizing the work of the gospel. So the Judaizers believed this. They believed that anybody that wasn't of pure Jewish descent could become a follower of Christ only if you adhered to all the rites and rituals of the Jewish people, then catch this, you were actually circumcised as a Jew and then were accepted as a Jewish person first, then you could become a Christian. There were certain works you had to do to become a Christian, which obviously goes plain and simple against the gospel. And so Paul was worried that the Judaizers were going to come in and add or distort to the gospel in such a way that people would be distracted and not be able to live in the joy that is assured to them through the gospel. Matthew 7, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with this this parable of two different kinds of people. One person builds their house on a rock, which is sure and steady and immovable. And the other person, he said, built their house on the sand. And when the storms came, there was no foundation. It would wash it away and it would not be steady and would not be firm. Jesus was speaking about the same kind of thing here. The gospel, a a one foundation that is secure and sure for us. The other religious works and activities to try and find security and surety. The gospel alone offers joy. The other withholds it. So chapter 3 gives us insight into Paul's concern for the church. I want to look at the first two verses before we dig in too deep. Here's what Paul writes in chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul begins chapter 3 very concisely here to lay out what he's going to present to them as the essential source they need to always remember and not drift from. When Paul says finally, he's not meaning that he's, uh, it means he's continuing the same theme that he began from the beginning. He's not saying finally this is it because he goes on in chapter three and lays something out, goes on to chapter four, and probably at some point this morning I'll say finally and I won't be done either. But Paul says finally, 
finally picking up on this theme of joy and rejoicing in the gospel. He's going to remind them of this again. So he, he ties rejoicing into it this time in a different way. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice. And what's the wording? In the Lord. He reminds them rejoicing and joy is found only in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. You know, we should probably find comfort just in this second, uh, or in this uh, verse alone when it says we should uh, be happy to receive what Paul's saying again. I couldn't tell you the amount of times that I stumble out of joy because I forget the gospel. We, we fall short of living in joy because we ignore the gospel or we take it for granted. So we discover while joy is a settled and secured gift from God, we need reminded of it. He says in verse 2, look out, look out, look out. Now, in our English language, that doesn't carry the heaviness that it would have when this group of folks read this letter. An emphasis of three times, look out, look out, look out. Beware, beware, beware. There's danger, there's danger, there's danger. He's genuinely concerned about the danger that was lurking for them. It was not just the teachers, the Judaizers, it was really about what they were teaching. A false gospel that salvation included a person earn their part somehow. It, it removes Jesus as the centerpiece and it removes you being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. So he says, look out that somebody doesn't say, well, yeah, Jesus is the source of salvation, but you have to do one, two, three, four, five things also. You see it? It removes Jesus as the very centerpiece of our salvation. Self-righteous pursuits violate the gospel and keep you from having joy because joy is a settled state, a sure state for a person who has faith and follows Christ. Paul wants to make sure they don't get caught up on some kind of religious treadmill in life trying to add to the gospel by their human effort somehow. So why does Paul say it's not a problem to write the same things? Because they need reminded of the gospel in order to live in joy. Not only the gospel that saves, but the gospel that sustains your joy. So read on with me, verse 3 through verse 16. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put 
no confidence in the flesh, though myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I love this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul really is concerned for his friends in Philippi. He is really concerned because the wording used in um, verse 2, dogs, is like the ultimate insult. I mean, he just lays down an insult on the Judaizers by calling them a group of ravaging dogs that prowl around waiting to intrude into this group of followers and distort the gospel. And so this is serious. He's very concerned when he uses this. But I want you to notice three things in the passage that, that Paul is reminding the uh, Philippians about that we need to take heart and be reminded of. The first thing that distracts us from a secure joy is by forgetting Christ and the cross alone makes us acceptable to God, not some type of correct conformity that we pursue. Let me say it again. Don't forget that Christ and the cross alone make us acceptable to God, not a pursuit of correct conformity. Look at Paul's life. He lays out this list of religious um, pedigrees, if you will, that would stack up higher than anybody else's. 
He's saying that everything he once trusted for his acceptance by God, he is now found to be useless. It's useless. He, he says it's rubbish. And in the original language, that word is manure. He said, everything I counted on to make me accepted by God is manure compared to Christ and the cross. Secure joy that, that Paul now lived in came from a justification solely on the work of Christ. So verse 9, he uses language that he says he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It doesn't say faith and something. It says faith alone. The righteousness it comes from God that depends on faith. And so Paul says he has joy from a settled soul because of Christ. Now let's talk about this righteousness that Paul speaks about here. This righteousness of God, what does that mean? Because again in our day, it's not something we probably talk a lot about. But let me start by saying God alone sets the requirements for anyone to be accepted by him. You don't get to choose from a multiple choice category. God says, here's who I am, here's my righteousness which describes me and also the grounds by which I have to meet to be accepted by God. Last week, we spent just a few minutes going all the way back to Genesis and talking about how man became separated from God because we thought there were better things in life than God. And so God creates us intentionally for him and to have a relationship with him. But because of sin, we really would prefer the things God created over him as creator. We want to experience the good things, so happiness means I'm pursuing all the things of God at the exclusion of God many times. And so man has this problem of being separated from God because our righteousness doesn't even come close to God and his righteousness. It means his righteousness is perfect, and that's the grounds for it being accepted by God. And so it means things like, you must never have lied one time in your life, or you missed the mark. One small lie, you missed the mark. It means that you must never have cheated on anything. It means that you must have never profaned God's name. It must also mean that you've never slandered someone, that you've loved God completely with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means you've never coveted anything that someone else had. You get the point. From the moment you're born, you fall short of these things. Because if you break one, you've broken it forever. 
because God's righteousness is his holy perfection. So God and his righteous standards are what you and I get measured by. It never changes and must be perfectly met and never violated, not once. And so Paul says, look, I tried to do all the things that I think God wanted me to do to be accepted, but they turned out to be manure. A life pursuing religious things. Instead, Paul says, no, he discovered the gospel. The gospel about God's work on our behalf. Meaning Jesus becoming flesh, living a perfect life, never sinning, and then willingly dying a death in innocence to pay the penalty for our sin that we deserve to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law and person. And that's the gospel. The righteous standard fully met by Jesus, not by anything you can do. And so Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, hey, remember, we are the people who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He points them back to Christ and the work of Christ in the gospel. And because of that, they are to glory in Christ. That means to boast about, put complete confidence in. I quickly want to just remind you of what Paul said his religious life was like that he pursued, which none of us probably came close to pursuing these kinds of things. But he says, look, according to the Judaizers, according to the religious law, let me tell you about my pedigree. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, set apart this visible sign of being set apart for for God, and that was prescribed in the Mosaic law. He said he was of the people of of Israel. He was a pure Jew, not a proselyte. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, the favored tribe in which Saul, the first king of Israel, came from. The tribe blessed by Moses as the beloved of the Lord. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that in his home, raised as a child, he would have been raised by parents to observe the strict teachings of Jewish customs and would have spoken the original Hebrew language. Then he goes on to say, I was a Pharisee. This highly trained group of people in the Mosaic law who were uh, Old Testament faithful followers, very zealous and legalistic. It was a highly sought after group of people to be in that club, if you will. Then he says he's a zealous Jew. He was a persecutor of the Christian followers of Christ. We discovered that in our Acts series, right? Paul going out actively to arrest and have Christians put to death. And then he says he was legalistic in his righteousness. He would have 
followed all the rituals and rites of the, of the Torah. Everything that he was supposed to do, all the offerings, all the sacrifices, all the trips to Jerusalem, all the things he had to do, he did them. And yet, his morality and his religion by man's evaluation should have been enough, but fell far short. But now he glories in Christ. He, he knows Jesus personally, because the language used here shows that. Follow along with me. In verses 7 through 9, he begins to say, all that was manure that I tried to do, but now that's all a loss. It's worthless except Christ and the gospel. It, it's, a, it's a loss. It's rubbish. God didn't care about what he tried to do. Now his pursuit is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He, he realizes it's only the work of Christ and the cross that could conform him to the righteousness of God. And then he says he wants to be found in him. He, he trusts Christ and he trusts the work of the cross, standing alone on the work of Christ to forgive his sin and now restore him in relationship with God. Not by works, not by religious rituals, not by things. Know this, this morning, friends. There is no relationship with God apart from Christ. No relationship with God apart from Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So no relationship with God apart from Christ, and there is no joy possible if you're separated from God. No soul health, no internal wellness of your soul if you're separated from God. We're justified solely by Jesus and the cross. We are justified solely. That means brought into a legal right relationship with God where we're seen as innocent because of the work of Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could be declared righteous in God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could be declared righteous. A person and the work of Christ alone. And so why do some of us get off track? Why do we miss the source? Because we start to pursue correct conformity through our actions and forget about our soul and our salvation being a settled thing before God through Christ. Amen? Second, the other thing that can trip us up in joy that Paul warns um, his friends in Philippi about is that, that to be careful by pursuing religious ritual instead of relationship with Christ. 
And that's seen in verses 8 and 10. He warns them about pursuing religious ritual instead of relationship. It's interesting, we've lived in Ashland uh, 40-some years now. And um, it's not uncommon to meet people, a pretty religious town by a lot of standards, we would say. And if you ask them about their faith, the most common answer you will get is this. I attend such and such church. When we tell me about your faith, well, I grew up in this church. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but that might be woefully short of what we need to identify ourselves as, right? Paul is saying, be careful that you don't pursue this relationship with Christ at the expense of pursuing religious ritual. He says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He doesn't say knowing about Christ Jesus. He says knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing Christ Jesus and then personally, my Lord, he said. Those are relational statements, friends. Relationship focuses on knowing and loving Jesus personally. It focuses on a person and interacting and developing the relationship. Ritual, religious ritual, focuses on finding favor with God. It's almost like you're trying to bribe God into liking you because you do one, two, three, four, five. I hit six days reading my Bible. I prayed three times. I went to church for a whole month straight. I made it two out of three times, whatever it is. Religious ritual can be something we simply check off our list and can be very impersonal, can it? In him, the term Paul uses is a relational term. It's also a theological term called justification. And I mentioned that a moment ago. But when he says, I am being found in him, it means that he is being found in Christ because he's been forgiven, redeemed, and restored. And now God sees him only through Jesus and the cross. Paul's pursuit is to know Christ, not know about him. It's interesting when you think about this, Paul's probably been a Christian over 40 years at this time. 40 years. And he describes himself someone who wants to know Christ more and more and more. See, religion is really only legalism without relationship, isn't it? Let me, let me say it again. Religion is only legalism without relationship. To know Christ means you are passionately pursuing him. He's the goal. He's the person you seek. Ritual begins to substitute the church. For Jesus, for some. 
I want to know more and more about Jesus so I can study. I want to know more and more about Jesus so I sing the songs. I want to know more and more about Jesus. No. Paul says, I want to know Jesus. There's a difference. Look closely. Listen to what he says. This passion in his heart stems from being forgiven and saved by Christ. And as a result of that, he has joy and rejoices and wants to know more and more and more about Christ. Is that true of you this morning? Do you know Jesus or do you know about Jesus? Third and finally this morning, I promise, finally, this is true. Third and finally, Paul writes and warns them that they need to be careful about replacing a passionate pursuit of Jesus with a periodical presence in their life. And when I use the word periodical presence, I'm meaning a set of religious activities or events that you become only participating in. So in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained all of this or I'm already perfect, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on, not because I've already arrived. Again, 40 years of following Christ, and he says, I'm pressing on. I'm staying the course. I'm undistracted. And so Paul, even Paul, a writer of all these texts in the New Testament, says, I haven't made it yet. I need further sanctification. I need to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so I'm going to press on. I'm going to strain hard to know Christ more and to be more like Christ. And then he invites them to join him. Join me in this, he says. Hey, look, if it doesn't seem like it's something you understand or know, God will make it known to you, but only be on the journey together with me so that your joy may be full. He says, I'm going to forget about the things behind, but I'm going to strain forward. And I'm going to strain forward to the point that I'm going to live hopefully remembering the resurrection, knowing that my eternal resting home is in heaven with God because of Christ. But while I'm on this earth, I'm going to strain, I'm going to press on to grow in the likeness of Jesus. Is your goal in life to look like Jesus? Is that the thing that you're pursuing? Is it the way that others see you that, yeah, when I look at Jeff's life, he's trying to pursue and become more like Jesus? Or are we more comfortable with periodical presence? See, when you settle for periodical presence, attendance only in some religious activities you attempt to fit Jesus into your life versus having Jesus be the starting point of your life. See, there's really only two ways you're going to live your life as a Christian. One is 
starting with Christ and then fitting every activity of your life into Jesus and how he would have you live that way. Or the other is starting with life and then figuring out where I can fit Jesus in when it's comfortable and when it works for me. See the difference? It's a big difference, isn't it? Either start with Jesus and fit life in, or you either start with life and try to fit Jesus in. Paul says, no, it's no problem to write to you the same things. You need to be reminded of the gospel, the thing that secures your joy and brings rejoicing. Don't get caught up listening to people that tell you there's more you need to do to be accepted by God. Here's my final questions that I'd encourage you to write them down or talk to your friends or coworkers or family about. And the first is this, have you and do you trust alone in Christ and his work on the cross for your salvation? Have you or do you trust in Christ alone as the basis for you being accepted by God? Or are you working and hoping for some kind of thing you can do to make God more and more happy with you? Well, let me just say, we all get caught into that sometimes, right? Yeah, if I, if I do this, God will be more happy with me. He showed you. He showed you through Christ how much you're loved, how much he's willing to do to restore the broken relationship with you. Are you lacking joy because you constantly try to earn God's favor? Rest, be content, enjoy peace with God through Christ, through faith in Christ. Let me say this real quick. Having faith in Christ is not some academic agreement or mental agreement. That's never what Paul means here. Yeah, I just uh, agree to that mentally. That makes sense. I don't want to go to hell someday. For Paul, a religious Pharisee, to switch his life and say, I want to know Christ more and more. That wasn't about a mental agreement. Second thing here, are you pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ or a life of religious ritual checking off the boxes? Scripture's clear. Listen to this. If you seek him, you will find him. If you call to him, he will answer. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Jesus will hear, he will answer, he will draw near when we draw near to him. Do you have a passionate pursuit of Christ or a periodical presence approach to your faith? Is Jesus simply something you fit into your life If you're lacking joy this morning, I'd encourage you to wrestle with some of those questions. Joy, the settled state 
the secure joy that we have only by Christ and the work on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we're grateful for your word that has been given to us by you. Lord, as we read this letter, we needed reminded, if we're followers of yours this morning, that the joy that we sometimes miss might be a result of us pursuing something other than you, Jesus, or trying to do something to add to the work that has already been done on the cross. Lord, this morning, we want to be like Paul. We want to know you more. And we realize that that requires us to surrender more to you. It requires us to desire you more than the other things. And even if we were to be so bold this morning, maybe we would say, you know, we chase happiness spiritually, trying to do things instead of enjoying and growing in our relationship with you and being reminded of the settledness of our salvation. Help us. Help us to live in joy. And for those this morning that maybe heard the gospel for the first time, for those this morning that the pieces are starting to come together, oh Lord, be gracious to them like you were to us. Lead them in courage to the cross. Allow them to give their life to you and follow you and thus live in secured joy. Do that by your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.